1: Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week we talk about a good week for Labour in policy terms.
0: What went on in the United flight.
1: And whether or not Boris Johnson has actually not been the one at fault this time. So Stephen, it's been... Um, a recess week for parliament and Labour have used it to take advantage of the fact that Theresa May has a much more kind of low-key chill approach to recess week than David Cameron did to announce a couple of policies. They've got a pension a pledge card which includes a commitment to the triple lock increase in the state pension until 2025. They had uh, earlier on they had uh, free school meals for primary school children and they had another one. They had another one. What was the other one?
0: Uh, £10 an hour minimum wage.
1: Yes. So in the last week and a bit they have come out with three policies the question is are they going to be popular
0: yes I mean well that's my strong instinct uh the free school meals one there there has been polling of and and people uh people like it a great deal
1: notably the Tories have not said how rubbish any of them are right which indicates that they're keeping their options open about
0: well the stealing them the slightly weird thing about the minimum wage to be boringly wonkish right is that one of the one of the, the slightly amusing things on Twitter is whenever you like tweet something like this will be popular. So even in on commentary, some Tory activist appears in your grill going like, oh, Labour want to destroy the economy. It's like it's a pound more than the Tories have said the wage will get to in 2000, which obviously that is 152 quid a month, which if you are on the minimum wage is a big deal. However, find me, please, a business that you honestly think that the extra 152 quid per worker is going to be game-changing for in terms of its ability to make you probably can't really actually
1: like george osborne let that genie out of that bottle right he's the one who decided to turn this into a a kind of pissing contest about who could make it higher rather than it being set by an independent commission right there's a case for saying you'd have a minimum wage set by a commission like the interest rates of farmed out to the bank of england right so it's or the obr does the budget forecast so you know you know you definitely want to increase this but you don't want it to become a kind of political football but there's you know George Osborne well, did yeah, like, And the same thing with the triple lock. The triple lock is a, a bad policy now, but it is also a popular one and it is one that the Tories have enthusiastically embraced when it was getting them votes. It's just that now that Labour might get votes from so it... So i actually you,
0: you turned on the triple lock. No. Uh, in the... Yeah, and I, okay, full disclosure. When I say I've U-turned, I mean someone from Shadow Treasury was very persuasive on it, um, which is then actually assuming that it stays in place... The the big winners from the triple lock are the are the young, not the old, because you are on the triple lock for longer.
1: Oh Stephen, that's adorable. You think we're gonna get pensions? We're not gonna get pensions.
0: But I just think, you know, optimism of the will, optimism of the other thing, intellect. No I don't,
1: we're not getting pensions. Don't 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 delude yourself with so this there, idea there'll be any money left at but, all. We'll but, but, be living in caves, swimming to work.
0: But there are, I mean, I feel either we'll be swimming to work or living in caves, but I don't feel those two things can really be reconciled.
1: We'll be building caves on the rare islands that remain in, among the waves. I mean, in I the live a tower
0: block, so I'll be fine. Uh, but anyway, I i think, assuming, as I think uh, the main uh, social democratic party should, that, that the, the Labour Party will, will eventually win back the majority for... Uh, compassion and centre-left politics uh, which you know it was doing fairly well at not so long ago Um, then actually you know know, because we forget that in 1996 there was a debate about whether or not pensioner poverty was an inevitable fact of life like gravity now pensioner poverty is this one thing that you're not allowed to increase um, so you know, I, I'm I'm actually fairly sold on the argument for the triple. I could,
1: lock. I could be, I could definitely be sold on the idea of the triple lock as a good thing, right? To ensure that you don't get dragged, pensioners don't get dragged back into pensioner poverty. I think that's fair enough. I do think there has probably got to be a concomitant offer to working age people who are now more likely to live, working age households now more likely to live in poverty, and actually pensioners. Average, Am I right? Average incomes are actually better than working age people. Yeah. So you have got this big disparity now where you have pensioners on essentially a universal basic income that is puffed up continuously. But any kind of stuff to increase working age benefits is seen as this kind of crazy indulgence. Um, So yeah, I think yes yes to the triple lock. It's not a bad measure per se, but it is at risk of creating an increasing amount of inequality um, between pensioners and working age people.
0: Yeah, I mean... So I also actually like universal free school meals because I'm really boring and statist. I, like, So one, I think some of the, the argument about, oh, it gives money to middle class parents, I mean, 17K, which is the current, yeah, it's a grand over the current threshold, is not middle class for, by, by sort of any reasonable definition of the term. Um, two, actually, if you look at unhealthy eating patterns right up the income spectrum, and if you look at so the most healthy generation in in Britain is the post is the wartime and post-war generation because if you grew up with rationing, you actually are your, your body trains itself to eat a balanced diet because your ration book is a a balanced diet. So there's a really strong argument for everyone in a school eating the same meal for it being a healthy and hot meal How there's a big but at the end of this. however, At that point, the outlay on building kitchens, outfitting your school to be able to provide all of that becomes considerably more than the revenue raise in the policy. And I think everyone seems to have forgotten that uh, McDonald's fiscal rule, which I actually like quite a lot. I think it's a very sensible um, way of managing actually does in terms of day to day spending put quite a lot of controls on what you can do. Assume yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't no, that's fair load. enough. And,
1: you know, friend of the podcast, Laura McInerney, we've had on before, who's editor of Schools Week, sort of got into this by saying there is no budgeting in this billion pounds for... Um, Kitchens, for building kitchens. So actually the big winner will be, you know, Capita, actually. It'll be Circa. It'll be the people who do the catering contest, which got her days of abuse by, you know, the, you, you know, the honking Twitter bellons of whom I speak, right? Mm. The kind of people who are just now weirdly, who were like anarchists until two years ago and now are massive Jeremy Corbyn fans. But also
0: know. this slight weirdness where like, so I think it's a lovely policy, but you know, it's a 2010, it's a 2008 to 2010 Labour policy, right? It was a, a 2008 pilot. It was a 2010 manifesto uh, commitment this bizarro idea not from Laura but from some people on the right that it is full communism
1: He's oh yeah, no. I got into an argument, and, like, and I shouldn't have got into an argument because Kerry Mendoza of the Canary noted a conspiracy blog, the Canary, about this, and just being like, "But if the, which brings me to my point actually about the whole of these policies, right? Which is that the, this whole week has been really indicative of actually how people make decisions about how they vote, which is not the idea we have where people rationally look at a menu of policies because you explain to people." Um, you know, on the Corbyn-friendly fringe that actually some of this stuff is, as as you've written pieces about about how some of this is very Milibandian, the triple lock is actually, you know, is actually much more cuddly towards pensioners than um, Ed Miliband would have been, um, who was proposing to means test the um, winter fuel allowance. And they won't believe you because they know that Corbyn is left-wing and is, you know, is, is, is super radical. And you say, well, actually, his policy proposal isn't that radical. And they go, no, his personality is radical. And the, on the converse side, you say to to general swing voters, well, actually, these policies individually are really popular. Like, we know rail renationalisation is actually 66% support. The problem is, for those people, they just don't like Corbyn, and therefore anything you associate with him, they hate, right? So on both sides, actually evaluating the policy is a long way behind, generally, your sort of tribal allegiance and your kind of intuitive feelings about the kind of person who's proposing it.
0: Yeah, and, and but also, I think one of the things which... There are lots of things that Labour has done very well over the recess. One, of course, is just using the time effectively and using Theresa May's lack of agenda and filling that vacuum. Uh, but the other is is that your policies are accumulative in that they send, they kind of send a message about what it is you'll you'll they send a cue about what it is you'll do, and the combined effect of all of these policies, all of which in some ways are, so the ten pound thing is kind of borrowed from the Greens. But is less radical because there's a big difference between ten pounds in 2015 and ten pounds in 2020. So it's actually more like Ed Ed Miliband's eight pounds an hour uh, policy. The stuff from uh, Universal free school meals, which is from Gordon Brown, and the third one, action on late payments, which again is uh, from it's the, very Milibandy, isn't it's, it's very it? Very is kind of from the It's also from some of the early 1994 stuff because the, there's a there's a massive problem. Uh, then, and this is actually quite distinct to Britain. Mostly on the continent the idea that you are you just pay your suppliers late is is, is a bit alien. Um, but the difficulty is it's one of those things where it's quite hard to work out what policy lever you pull because it's already illegal to do that. Is it just that you have a punitive interest rate, but then do people just go bust? Yeah, it's it's more difficult to enforce than you'd think. However, what all of them have as a value is they send a message that Labour will take something from very rich people and give something to everyone. Right, so they're they're more effective than than they were when they were announced by Ed, because with Ed, there was mostly. Like this thing is, the 2015 Labour manifesto is actually a lot more radical than than people would think.
1: See, I think that's the thing. I think actually a lot of Ed era policies are looking better in retrospect. Some of the stuff about land banking, for example, you know, that kind of stuff. It, it is, you know, bits of the rhetoric are certainly being nicked by Theresa May, bits of the policy agenda are being nicked by Corbyn and sort of dismantled. So I think it will probably, I mean, I'm probably not the Edstone, but the rest of it we maybe look back on with slightly. Rosia, here's a question which I genuinely don't know the answer to. The SNP are getting a lot of weather about the so-called rape clause, right, which is the idea that for, I'm going to get the right one, child benefits, not tax credits.
0: Both, I think, because they both fall off with the third child.
1: That you, The third child, except unless you can prove it was multiple births or um, that it was a non-consensual pregnancy. And there's like a horrible form that you have to like tick this bucket bo- box if you've been raped basically and then that then goes into a, a system and uh, files that are held by loads of people and you don't know how many people that are being accessed i think it's uh, for a very small saving it is a pretty crushingly inhumane thing and another thing that actually if it happened to you know um much more middle-class people, I think people would think this was horrible, but actually there's almost no indignity you won't kind of inflict on people who are kind of seen to be benef- a class of people who claim benefits, even though we know, you know, obviously lots of middle-class people do claim benefits. Why aren't Labour getting on the anti-rape clause train? Um,
0: I mean, I think, to be honest, like the, the 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 short answer is then, um, oh God, I'm going to confuse is Alison, Alison Thewis and... Kirsty Blackman, who's, who's who's the very short SNP MP, uh, then Alison Tulis got there first, uh, and has done it very effectively, and she's been backed very loudly by a large chunk of uh, the Labour Party, both both in Scotland uh, and in Westminster. But the it's quite an interesting comparison because the SNP are large and they are the main party in Scotland. They're able to keep ownership of issues, whereas obviously Tim Farron was sort of first on refugees. But then Yvette Cooper kind of was like, well, I'm a more prominent politician. I'd like this issue, K, thanks, and kind of took it from him. And that's kind of what you can do if you're the the main opposition party. I mean, so I think the, the thing is, so obviously, like the rape clause is awful. Uh, obviously, the government shouldn't do it. However... In an odd way, if I were advising the leader of the opposition, I'd go, they are going to do it. There's not, like, I, I kind of in an odd way, the problem when you're leader of the opposition is people think you are weak because you are weak. Uh,
1: so don't, pick don't call for that you're things never that gonna win. you
0: can't, you yeah, can't do. Yeah, I suppose you could have it in your
1: manifesto do. saying that you would repeal it if you think um, there's a realistic So I,
0: I think Labour's actually ended up in quite a good place on on that, in that the SNP, as the third party, get the kind of campaigning credit. Uh, they can actually do things to ameliorate that in, in in the Scottish Parliament. Labour can't, so there's not really a secondary win for them. Mm. All, all that Corbyn would have by saying stop it is it would just be another thing where he was like a guy who stands up in PMQs and goes, I'm sad that injustice is happening. And the problem is, is that people, what people like about the Labour Party is they think it's the party which stands up and goes, I'm sad that injustice is happening what they don't like about it isn't they think that it's weak and it can't govern so the trick is to basically only draw attention to the fact you're sad about injustice happening when you can also then have the second sentence and I, I made you not make injustice happen
1: there we go i mean my yeah my general reflection on this period for labor is some policies have some weaknesses but overall this is the strongest week that i've seen from them in a, in a long long time i think since
0: since he became leader yeah dispiriting events we discussed in the first half of the podcast um and actually this story is kind of grimly fascinating as well but you may or may not have seen uh the footage of uh, a 60 something year old doctor being dragged off uh an overbook well not even an over a flight in united everyone had sat down some of the crew of
1: uh, and the crew from another uh flight they wanted to get them back to this other city so that they could then fly on another plane so yeah this guy they Dragged him off. Hit his he he fell. His head hit a seat rest because it was being propelled into it by a dude. Um, I mean, I saw this story because it was top of Reddit on that day, right? Because they they just surfaced the guy who had tweeted the um, video of it, and I think it's one of those things where you you know. It's very hard to get away with this stuff now. And it's a, it is a good thing about citizen journalism and kind of the sort of informal personal surveillance state of everyone having a, a camera on them, right? Because it's one of those stories that if we hadn't seen the footage of it, it might have been a really arguable thing. Reports would have come in. But it's when you see you know the, them dragging a kind of limp guy out of his seat that you kind of think, bloody hell, like is that a thing that could happen to me? And I've already got this problem with airlines. About the fact that they do, make you do lots of stuff for security reasons, which is basically bollocks. There's really there's a great article about this concept of security theatre, right? And they got an American journalist went and took on, like, just took on knives onto planes, right? Because we know that 9/11 hijacking was done with box cuts. It wasn't done with anything particularly sophisticated. And actually, a lot of screening really misses stuff like this. Um, all of that stuff is there really to. I'm sorry. Of, wait. Wait. What? Well, a lot of that stuff, a lot of the screening stuff, right, is just so to make you... So I could be on a plane f-
0: with someone with knives?
1: Feels scared, like, to make you feel like there's something going on you will definitely get caught. That it actually... It, well, well, but it's just... just but, so I'm on a plane, yeah. and there's
0: a, there's a good chance that someone actually has got a knife.
1: Well, I don't think a there's a good chance that someone's got a knife, but I'm just saying that actually... That screening is not as effective as airlines would have you believe. It is not a hundred percent, you know, like amazing cast iron science. Which is why that they're now um, stressing out about laptops in um, in hand luggage from some countries. You know, the stuff that's been going on because actually the the screening is, has got some flaws in it. Like that's not an outrageous, the new piece of information to you, is it?
0: No, this is t- this, this this is not my oh yes, I'm hearing old information face. This is my. Uh, so because I am a sheeple, yeah. I I basically assume that once I'm in the plane and I've gone through the, which is really stupid because obviously I work in Westminster, which even before the attack, actually, I mean, the attack reflected the security quite well, um, but, you know, famously the, the casual workers, because, you know, no one in the establishment sees people who, who earn under eight quid an hour? Uh, you know, just like the number of ways you can get in, etc. But in my mind, when I'm on a plane,
1: yes, yeah, um, um, I'm, safe. you know,
0: I'm, I'm, you know, safe unless the pilot decides and he wants to be like, you know, the Alps. Well, team. the
1: reason that they, um, do you remember that the the reason why they banned laptops from the cabin is because of that bombing where a guy had um, a bomb in his laptop and it went off and it broke through the skin. of the, He was sitting in his seat. He was holding it. It went through his skin, but he got sucked out of the hole. Mm-hmm. But they were still, they were not yet at such a height that actually they couldn't land the plane safely with because of the depressurization which is one of the reasons they want laptops to go in the hold right because it you, you, then it's much a small explosion has got much less chance of puncturing the skin of the plane mm. but there's a quite a big kind of um body of work on about the fact that actually a lot of this is about kind of keeping you compliant right. so uh, so one of the there are several really interesting strands that came out of this uh, and the first one is this idea that american in you know, american public space is so heavily militarized and actually it's very hard for particularly for White upper to middle class people to understand, maybe for Europeans to understand as well, that actually, you know, you just get ordered around a lot, and 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 if you don't, you know, as as we've seen with all some of the the stuff that's been brought out by Black Lives Matter, if you in any way get into any kind of altercation with authority, right, it is always presumed to be your fault. No, anyone who stands up to quote unquote law enforcement is kind of seen as innately suspicious in and of themselves. And you did see this in this case where there's a big dump about all the stuff that the guy's allegedly supposed to have done, which might not even turn out to be him. But it was this kind of idea that if he'd done something slightly dodgy in his medical career 10 years earlier, then actually they, maybe they psychically intuited this as they dragged him out of his, his seat. Um, so I think that's one really interesting aspect of it. And the other one that's a really interesting aspect of it is you know, my strong belief that people who preach on about free markets often it turns out you scratch the surface, they don't really believe in free markets. They just believe in markets which are advantageous to them because they have greater size or greater knowledge. So the financial services would be a really interesting example of this. You know, high frequency trading, There is an enormous bidding war for who will buy the offices that are closest to the exchange because literally making your fibre optic cable like three metres shorter gives you an advantage. Being able to trade algorithmically gives you a huge advantage. These are markets in which you can't turn up as a regular punter and expect to do any well. They are essentially not rigged because that implies some sort of malevolence, but they are just innately favourable to some actors over other actors.
0: So because I... As, I mean, I take a lot of trains. This is one of the reasons why this is all coming as a horrific surprise. Um, so, yeah, I don't get the, the free market point. I mean, surely the ultimate, well, I guess, no, actually, I guess my, my bias is showing, but, I would say the ultimate symbol of the free market is the business being like, well, you well, signed we a like? contract.
1: <laughs> but that's the thing. So they overbook flights, and this happens, actually, United, uh, I think Economist did some research, and United do it a lot. And they take the view that most of the time it works out really economically efficient for them because people don't turn up and therefore they always run full planes. They're not holding seats for people on flexible tickets who then don't turn up. The problem comes is essentially at that point you've assigned a value to a seat. We've already acknowledged that you, know, you have differential pricing on seats. If you buy them early, you get them well. I've been, I'm so, I cannot even, t- I, don't make me go on a rant about air miles. I signed up for a credit card that had air miles because I thought, oh, this is brilliant. I've always wanted to upgrade on something, but I'm too cheap to ever pay the price myself. How brilliant. You can only do it on certain flights, which are like one in the morning, and you basically can't choose where you go to. They open them 364 days before the flight goes. So you have to decide where you want to go a year in advance, and then they sell out really quickly. So airlines already have this idea Rather that like they... like
0: the new Statesman. Am yeah. I right? Uh,
1: we sell out quite slowly over a period well, <laughs> of like 100 years. Um, you know, but actually, I roots.
0: mean... To be honest, like in terms of our original roots, like we had basically sold out by like nineteen
1: ten. No, we didn't. weren't founded until 1916. 1913. Unless we went in a time machine. We did not. Yeah. But yeah. So the point is, they've created they created an, a situation in which they acknowledge that a seat has a flexible value, but they weren't willing to offer people enough to give up their seat at that point, right? So it's basically like, yeah, we think that there's a, a va- inherent value to a seat, except when we want the seat, at which point we will, drag, you know, call a security person in to hit you on the head and drag you down the aisle, you know, in a humiliating fashion where everyone can see your stomach. Which I have to say. Is like 90% of the reason I'm horrified by this is the thought of people seeing my navel on the internet is the worst possible thing I can imagine.
0: I think the thing, I mean... So obviously I find it surprising that the police came in, effectively beat the guy up and then carried him
1: out. Well, one of them has at least been suspended, right? The officer that did it. And the Chicago yeah. police at least have gone, hell, this doesn't look so good.
0: But it's odd because I realised that... The reason why I always will just be like, right, okay, I'll get off right away," is that sense of like, "Oh well, what if someone from authority like beats me up?" Um, but it still was very sinister because, um, yeah, both the Chicago police and United's first statements did have a very like killed while trying to escape.
1: Fell down the stairs, yeah. right? It, that's definitely what it had. It had a kind of... Yeah, it, 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 it was attempting to shift the blame onto him for being protesting and being like... He got irate with the thing, with the police officers. And that's where I think there's a really difficult, and I think maybe for us in Britain it's hard to understand, I think people have really felt there's a really racialized component to that because when a white middle class person has an argument with the police, like that's a kind of, you know, exchange of views I mean I think there's a feeling when an ethnic minority, particularly in America has a thing with the police, that's he I, he was clearly reaching for my gun so I shot him six times in the back Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons that people are so sensitive about it.
0: Um But yeah, I mean so I think uh, there are a couple of things I was uh struck by None of them was, like, about state violence or capitalism because I'm not very bright and also I only ever take trains. Uh, it's really genteel when you only take- How do ta- you get
1: across the ocean?
0: I don't. I mean, you, you can take the Eurostar or you can take a ferry. Um, you can, Partly because the weird thing about getting back on the morning email beat is that obviously I read all of the political news very thoroughly but it means that you exist in this weird state of semi-informed paranoia. Because as time passes, I can't remember, oh, wait, did I read this health story in a reputable newspaper? Did I read it in the Express? Did I read it in the Mail? And so I have this continual sense of just like, can chicken kill me if I look at it?
1: Do bananas cause diabetes? Yeah,
0: just like I, I exist in this, this sort of weird state of perpetual paranoia. Um, but also just the nice thing about trains is you don't have like the baggage restrictions nonsense. Your ears don't pop. I mean, realistically, you can't, you know, smash however many thousand feet down in the earth. And it's just also, also, the thing is, with a holiday by train, your holiday starts at the train station. Realistically, let's face it, a holiday involving a plane trip your holiday doesn't start till you're in the air, stops abruptly when you land in the airport in the country you're visiting, is paused for maybe three hours. Then, because all airports other than in London, where we just don't care about poisoning the air, are, you know, in the middle of nowhere, you're then like, oh great, looks like I'm getting on an overheated coach. It's just horrible. Whereas a train, everything is very sophisticated. I can pretend to myself that, like, you know, you're, you're in a, a movie. I love trains.
1: You don't go on First Great Western as was very often, do you? I
0: actually went not go on First Great Western a great deal. Um,
1: because that is not... I mean, like Virgin Trains, although the pendulinos make me feel profoundly nauseous, so that is a, a false economy, really, um, are at least kind of quite nice, apart from the ones that smelled of poo. That was an issue. But um, yeah, yeah. some of the others are not so good, particularly when they substitute in a, like, a little tiny four-carriage puffer one that doesn't have any loos on it. That's like my number one fear. But are you are you scared of flying? Are you a nervous flyer? No, I'm, I'm perfectly relaxed about it. Yeah, I'm I, I'm getting worse. I was fine, and then now I'm... Well, now, now I'm, you've got
0: the fear you'll be dragged off by a... Well,
1: no, I, that would be... I, I, I genuinely have a fear of it falling out of the sky. But
0: I think the other thing, and it reminded me of, to kind of return to a subject that has um, sort of come to life again, because the kind of meme in the lobby at the moment is Labour's press operations are shit, is... The weird thing is, that at basically, every stage of, Unite, of United's response, silence would have been a better option, right? At, at the point when there is footage of a, a man
1: limply being dragged out, being with dragged a out mouth. with a bloodied
0: mouth. Right at that point, there is just just go quiet and hope that I don't know, like Trump blows something up again and everyone forgets,
1: um, or at least do a statement that says, "We are incredibly sorry. No one should be treated like this. We'll look into it." Right. The thing that the problem was that their first one, the first statement, and the first sentence in the first statement was, this is very upsetting to everyone at United. And you were like, yes, you have zeroed in on the real victim here. You and your staff are upset that they're being criticised.
0: Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so w- we went for dinner at a friend who's recently left working in politics because they've been doing it for a long time and, and they wanted a break. And I was like, oh, how are you finding life outside? Um, and they said you know, the thing you kind of take for granted is actually everyone who works in political in political comms, even people who this person thinks have terrible ideas about everything, is actually quite on it. Um, and that was the really interesting thing about it, is that basically everyone who works for an MP or a minister or for the leader's office who you spoke to about it was like, no, obviously you wouldn't do that. Um And because actually, because so much time in politics is spent having to defend your boss's interest against someone else's boss on your own side, let alone everyone else. And because of the weird thing where you're both the boss of your boss and and there's just all sorts of weird power dynamics which exist in politics. you, You kind of forget actually how people who work in political communications are mostly really good at it. It turns out people who do the same for airports
1: less so... It is definitely, and to continue one of our frequent memes, it is definitely playing PR on the highest possible difficulty setting, right? Yeah. With people who are actively hostile to you often, who are going to uh, have a commercial interest in you failing... Often, like, particularly if you're of the opposition, yeah. whether that's a Labour or a Tory opposition, people don't really need, you know, particularly several years out from an election, they don't really kind of have a huge vested interest in you succeeding. You don't have a lot of goodies to give to them, particularly if you're in opposition. It is definitely an, a pretty thankless task.
0: Yeah, whereas, obviously, for United, it, yeah, it's not like your job's actually been that difficult until...
1: They did badly over the legging incident. They wouldn't let some girls on the plane in leggings because they were travelling on a, um, like a, an employee ticket and they said there was a dress code. And you were like, they've got clothes on. I mean, what, you know, I, This a terrifying idea that one now has to dress, one dresses for the plane.
0: So from this I have learned that I will continue to avoid flying and you have learned that you will avoid flying to America?
1: Do you know what? I know this is a difficult thing. I don't want to go to America at the moment. There's loads of places in America I really love. But I just think it's so... There's so much misery. No one can answer the question about whether or not what exactly will happen at the border if you have to give them your Twitter password or like whether or not you have to hand over all your stuff to them i mean you know the assumption is i think having traveled to russia last year and just getting the kind of lecture at heathrow about how basically if your visa is even slightly wrong like they don't give a flying one they will just send the whole plane back it's really interesting to get to the stage where now america has also got into the sort of sod off zone where they're just quite happy they don't care if you're unhappy they don't really yeah. you know they're, they're just sort of you know the Putting the two fingers up to you. Do you know and how you can JFK avoid JFK arrivals? Is already like the, the the misery upon misery of the world as you shuffle in a queue for three hours in a baking hot hall.
0: Do you know how you can avoid all of this?
1: Going on the Eurostar to Paris.
0: That too, but you can also just take like the Pendolino to like Penzance and Saint Ives.
1: As previously discussed, the Pendolino makes me vom.
0: So now it's time for a section we like to call.
1: You ask us. Um, my uh, you ask us is, is is relatively simple this week, which is explain what's going on with Boris Johnson and Syria for the benefit of people who find Syria phenomenally confusing.
0: So, um, as I, I assume, unless any of our listeners get their news solely through the New Statesman podcast, which must be a strange experience, if so,
1: a great experience.
0: Um, but you must also you must get emotional whiplash quite a lot. Um. As you all know Donald Trump uh, u-turned on his Bashar al-Assad is the part of the solution not part of the problem in Syria because he turned on the TV and saw that some Syrian children had been gassed and also his daughter Ivanka Trump turned on her TV and saw that as well. That's not by the way, you might think, oh
1: that's you, you know, being offensive. That's me
0: being, you, know, me being unfair. No, that that is actually what the actual honest to goodness White House is briefing out and and saying publicly, and what Trump himself has said in interviews. Right. Um, now, obviously, the use of, um, of 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 gas weapons, uh, particularly sarin gas, is is, is you know is, is very bad. But it's also There's an internationally interesting...
1: recognised red line, right? And then that was the. Debate in, let me say, 2013 about Barack Obama about whether it was another previous chemical weapons attack that was the trigger for him asking seriously whether or not he should change his Syria policy. Yes,
0: but it is worth sort of noting that this is this is very much the antithesis of a "when the facts change, I change my mind" situation. There have been at least a hundred attacks of, of of this nature between the the red line being breached and 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 in 2013 and and now. The only difference is that Donald Trump and a member of Donald Trump's family switched on the TV at an inopportune moment. And as a result, he's chucked some tomahawks at the problem. So it Um, doesn't
1: seem to have been a very effective strike, does it? I mean, in terms of, uh, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised in the sense that it didn't do much damage or kind of dramatically cripple the Assad machine because it was only one strike but it also doesn't seem to have had any kind of long-term objective other than Donald is cross Donald press angry button
0: yeah and um well so the the U.S. has now officially changed its policy I mean this is like we're one of the many terrifying things about the the Trump era is this weird world in which I'm about to go the U.S. has changed its policy or has it or has it um which really ought not you you know You really ought not to have a situation where the president, the secretary of state and his UN ambassador go, policy has changed. And it's just like, oh, well, I guess it might change back. So now the official policy is regime change in in, in Syria that Bashar al-Assad needs to be got rid of. And part of that uh, would involve involves convincing the Russian government... That it is not in their interests to help prop him up there.
1: But the thing is that, that strikes me about that is when you say it's a big thing to regime change, particularly after like the shadow of Iraq and Libya, is that that we, you normally imagine the international community to be kind of freaking out about that. But as you say, it's been a strangely muted response for the reason that most people aren't really sure if this is the you know, like Tuesday's policy or the policy.
0: Well, yeah, and this is like one of the the interesting. Um, Commonalities in Theresa may's policy towards Donald Trump, right, so Boris Johnson has been heavily criticized uh, both in our press and by Tory ministers and and abroad for basically sallying in as as Rex Tillerson's water carrier his his opposite number in the United States uh and preparing the ground for tougher sanctions and what when you talk to European diplomats based here in Britain, the reason why uh they they have basically gone yeah. Thanks, you're all right, mate. is as one of them put it to me, we have to live here, yeah, as in next to Russia in Europe, right? And the UK has to live here too.
1: So Boris Johnson was if, trying to lobby for, for, harsher for, for harsher sanctions and kind of got a, a very frosty response. Yeah,
0: and the the kind of the view on the diplomatic street, God, that was a terrible metaphor which I won't <laughs> use again. Is is that Trump? Yeah, exactly. This kind of oh, so Trump says this today, he might say something different. He might get bored because it's quite complex. He might walk away as he did with healthcare. He might escalate because he hates to lose. None of which are situations that if you are, like us and the rest of Europe, rather closer and smaller than Russia, unlike the United States.
1: And reliant on it for gas. And reliant funds. on
0: it for, for gas, as, as many parts of Europe are. It's actually really not in your... Your interest is basically to just be like, OK, guys, if, if you want to have this this fight, just FYI, I'm not involved. Now the again the the thing which does not reflect very well, actually, to be honest, not Boris Johnson. I find it slightly weird that I'm defending Boris Johnson quite this much this week, but I'm uh, just going to go home and, and vomit a little bit afterwards, and I'm sure I'll be fine. Um, then actually, that's entirely removed from decisions that Boris Johnson has has taken or not taken. Right, it was Theresa May who in a rare sensible move in terms of foreign policy since she came into office realize that if you have a pro kremlin president of the united states the the united kingdom has had a fairly hostile relationship towards russia since the killing of alexander litvinenko in i want to say 2006. Um, you need to ratchet that down and attempt to repair and reset that relationship as much as possible and boris johnson had been was, was going to get on a plane to, to do that. The Tomahawks were fired, and basically uh, the British government went, oh, brilliant, our hand-holding has worked. Donald Trump has decided Putin is bad. We can therefore mothball this attempt Operation
1: to... Operation Ferrero uh, Rocher. Yeah,
0: to, to, to mend fences, right? I think there are many, many reasons to believe that that will turn out to have been a bad call. Um, because, yeah, I mean, so are I... I I was I would have said I was very supportive of um, a managed exit for Assad in 2011. I was on the fence in 2013, but actually by this point, really, although it's not helpful to begin advice with first build a time machine, it's even less helpful to begin advice going pretend you don't need a time machine. And the thing that Assad has successfully done is he has killed most of the opposition to him that A, commands some form of popular legitimacy and could run the country, but isn't B, Islamic State?
1: Yeah, I think there's a big problem when the airstrikes against Islamic State became a thing, that the US, UK and some other people, bits of coalition were hitting Islamic State and Russia was not overly uh, discriminatory about who it bombed, who weren't Assad's forces, right? So any more of... People who weren't Islamic State, who might have been Islamists, but might have been a a whisper more moderate, have also been kind of pushed out to the sides.
0: Yeah, and and the thing is, from 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 Russia, in terms of Russia's strategic interest in the region, what they they need isn't someone who, and I keep getting them confused in speech, which is increasingly embarrassing because they're two different countries. Uh, Is there the warm uh, water uh, port of Tarsus, not Tartus? they need to have access to it and they need to know that whoever, whatever happens when the dust settles, the Syrian government and the important part there is singular. You can't have a situation like you have in in Libya where when the EU negotiates with Libya to try and um, to, you know, basically make sure that when people wash up uh, from having made the Mediterranean crossing, it happens in Libya, not here in Europe where people get upset about it. Uh, which grimly is basically the EU's calculation about the migrant crisis. There are basically three Libyan governments, none of which can really run. Not It's not just that they can't run all of Libya, none of them really governs a part of Libya without interference from, from the other. So Russia doesn't want that with its warm water port. It obviously doesn't want IS to be the people who run its warm water port, because... Thinking IS crazy. Doesn't, want to, doesn't want to give Russia access to a, a warm water port. Um, so f- from their perspective, it's well, it's Assad or, or the sea. We obviously choose Assad. Um, and if you want regime change, and there are other uh, issues around that in terms of successful interventions and unsuccessful interventions, you have got to have a plausible answer, not just to Russia, but in, in general to the, if not a sad who question. As there isn't one, again, this is one of the reasons why basically everyone else in the G7 uh, kind of just thinks that actually the US is not going to achieve regime change. Uh,
1: so why pile in behind a doomed initiative that they might abandon halfway through Yeah, anyway? exactly. Okay, but what about Iran? So I think their um, relation, particularly Donald Trump, has really affected that, right? Because the whole thing of that Kathy Ashton was doing about trying to kind of negotiate them back off the cliff and the Obama administration has all been... Kind of junked right they now are in a much more kind of YOLO place
0: Yeah, and again the um, because the interesting thing is I mean although Although very probably there was Russian Involvement in the u.s. Election in terms of you know attacks on the on the DNC and the Democratic Party and although in parts of the world Trump's policies were more favorable to Putin, they were always going to have a head on collision at some point over the Iran deal, which actually Russia put a lot of work into and Trump wanted to unpick. And yeah, and again, basically, the the problem is, is the, the Trump message to Iran is, you can't come here if you're from here. We don't like your country we're at we're basically against your country and we're also not going to let you have uh, nuclear weapons now obviously there are many many reasons to be of against stick, nuclear pr- but pr- no proliferation carrot, right? but yeah but like yeah but there the, the all international diplomacy does kind of have to be founded on a little bit of if you're good you'll get a treat and there is really no treat available so that has has hardened that uh, russia has provided an awful lot of logistics support in terms of training soldiers and all of that kind of infrastructure stuff to Iran. And this is where, again, Libya comes back into it. Because there was a really good uh, Times long read where they found the teenager who kind of kicked off the Syrian civil war by accident by by writing half as a joke after Gaddafi had uh, been um, either deposed or perhaps even after he'd been sort of killed in the street, you know, Bashar, you're, ne- you're next, hmm. um, and and basically from from a sad's perspective, right? He he doesn't want to end up killed in the street, um, and everything since the fall of Libya has been you know, designed around avoiding that that fate.
1: It's the grimmest of grim realpolitik, though, isn't it? The idea that at some point you might capitulate to keeping Assad, a man who has massacred huge numbers of his own citizens, who has run huge torture prisons of, like, unspeakable brutality, that you kind of go, well, we're choosing between him and his Islamic State, so we pick at least the mildly sane ruler rather than the totally impossible to reason with jihadists
0: yeah and and basically for for many people i
1: think know, that's why people don't want to have an opinion on syria because yeah. actually you have to it, there is no pure opinion to have on syria right i know jeremy corbyn says we need a political solution but the bit he won't end up saying is a political solution that involves talking to a man who is happy to gas children to death
0: yeah and i, and I think it's there's this interesting phenomena on bits of kind of the left online of, of this kind of Assadist revisionism. Um and you know which is particularly weird because it's not like Assad is like many autocrats who kind of at least started semi in a like a oh yeah I'm a socialist. It's like, yeah, okay, pull the other one and plays the pulls the sings the red flag. Um so it, it's even weirder than that. But it's because basically, seeing as it's increasingly hard to see a resolution which doesn't involve Assad winning in some shape or form, right? Because even if he was somehow to end up not running the country, the the deal is going to involve. There was in,
1: all, for a while there was a lot of talk about him getting sort of some sort of sinecure in Saudi Arabia, right? Basically, yeah. getting sort of bundled out on a bus, yeah, and exactly, living his, out his life in some dusty palace somewhere. Which
0: means the only way you can come with, up with an opinion about what will happen in Syria that doesn't make you feel very sad is to convince yourself that Assad. Is not also bad. So
1: you sort of hear this stuff about, well, at least he's secular, and you think, yeah, up to a point, or copper. Um, but yeah, I think it's um, I think it's yeah, I think that's a, an unexpected home from this is that actually, for once, Boris Johnson has had a very bad hand that he hasn't necessarily played particularly badly.
0: Yeah, I mean, for him, I mean, obviously, the, the flip side of this is the reason why they've all, why the other EU foreign ministers have gone out of their way to issue statements and just statement just being like this stupid idea is because he keeps being like oh remember Pipes. the Nazis <laughs> um, yeah. yeah yes
1: exactly he does kind of keep going like whistling the Dan busters theme tune in meetings and stuff like that so they do kind of hate him yeah
0: so that that is part of the context but yes for the first and I imagine only time on the NS podcast actually really the, the weird fault is is not all Boris's You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. Our music is by The Underscore Orchestra and is licensed under Creative Commons. It's produced by India Burke and mixed by James Shields. If you love the New Statesman podcast, like us on Facebook for extra content in which we discuss this week's podcast in even more detail. And you can also see my weird hand gestures. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support The New Statesman's independent journalism every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love
1: Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.